last time that I had the privilege to address our community, I spoke a message called, Who Do You Love? Who Do You Love? And you might recall that during that message, one of the things that we did was we did kind of a, I think it's a little bit of a difficult exercise, but what we did was we sat here in this room and we looked at each other. And as we looked at each other around the room and kind of gazed into each other's eyes, um, one of the things that we wanted to, to remember as we looked at each other was the person that you were looking at is an eternal being created by God. That that person is commanded to love God and to love each other. And that God sent his son to save that person. So we really wanted to kind of value each other. And so today what I want to do is I want to, uh, I want to follow up on that message. And I'm one personally that believes that you can't really preach enough about love. And so I'm going to preach the natural follow-up message to the who do you love message about God commanding us to love him and to love each other. And this obvious follow-up I call how do we love? How do we love? So let me just set the stage. Um, as, as Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 12, he's, about, he's, he's describing the spiritual gifts that God gives us, and he's about to launch into this amazing chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we call it the love chapter of the New Testament. But he pauses a little bit just before he gets into that love chapter, and he says this extraordinary statement, 1 Corinthians 12.31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. There it is on the, on the big screen. I will show you a still more excellent way. I believe that what Paul is referring to is he's getting ready to launch into this treatise on love, and he's saying, you know what? Our excellent way is that we walk in love. This is the more excellent way. We walk in love. We walk in love. And my prayer as a community here that we call Generations Church is that we begin to walk in that still more excellent way that Paul is kind of exhorting us to here. So let's, let's let, before we get started, let's just pray into that, can we? Well, Lord, I just thank you for this community that we call Generations Church, this body, your expression, Father. I thank you, Lord God, that, uh, that as, uh, as I speak today, Father God, that you would help me speak your truth and your truth only, Father, that the truth be received by your people, Father God, that we walk and that we have a desire to walk as we leave this place in your more excellent way, that is, loving each other the way that you have called us to love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, before we get started in, in the scriptures that we're going to use this morning, I want to tell a little bit of a story. Back a few years ago, um, I, I had um, a situation where I had, I guess, a gallbladder attack. And so the doctors uh, did surgery. They, re they removed my gallbladder laparoscopically. That, everything was cool. It was great. Like, no problem. Matter of fact, I felt so good that a week later, Marietta and I were 
taking ballroom dance classes at the time. A week later, we were getting ready to go to ballroom, our ballroom dance class. I felt good. Um, but as we were preparing to go, I began to really get sick. I mean, really feel bad. And it got to the point where I finally told Marietta, I said, I don't know what's going on, but you're going to have to take me to the hospital. And so Marietta um, very quickly took me up to Fort Worth, and they put me in the emergency room. And by the time I got to the emergency room, I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, I was one sick puppy. I was not a happy camper. I have never felt pain the way that I was feeling pain when I went into that emergency room. I was gray. I believe I was in shock. I was sweating profusely. I mean, just, I mean, just sweat from every pore of my body. And um, um, so the doctors took me into the emergency room, and they began to administer morphine. Well, every time they would give me a dose of morphine for the pain, it would just, I would go from what I thought was the worst pain that I have ever felt to even worse pain with the morphine on board. What they didn't understand is that when they had removed my gallbladder, they'd left something, of a stone behind in my bile duct and in my liver. And every time they were administering morphine, it would cause that sphincter muscle to begin to spasm and I would just go off the charts. And this is the one time, the one time in my life where um, as I laid there and I was, I was experiencing that pain, um, um, I was literally praying to God. I said, God, I'm ready to go see Jesus. I mean, that's how bad it was. This is the one time. I can't describe the pain. And Marietta knew something was wrong. She finally ran to the doctors and said, every time you give him morphine, he's off the charts. What's going on? And so they changed my medication to, I think, Dilaudid, I believe. And um, I was finally able to get some relief from the pain. And I laid down on that gurney. I remember finally being able to say, oh, thank you, Lord. So I'm laying there on that gurney, and I fall asleep. Thank you, Jesus. Because my body had been under stress for a long, long time. And when I woke up, I remember laying on that gurney. I'm kind of on my side, and my knees are tucked up behind me. And I wake up, and I reach behind me, and there's probably four inches of the gurney that's left that I'm not occupying, and Marietta is beside me, and she is spooned in behind me, and I reach behind her, my, behind me, and I feel that, and I can't tell you the level of comfort and, that it, and, and peace that just feeling her, and I know that she had to be uncomfortable, it had to be terrible, but the comfort and peace that that brought me when I reached behind me and I felt that she was there and she was holding me for all that she was worth. And it really was a good situation. So I want to come back to that story in just a minute because I'm going to make some admissions. So at the end of the, at the, end of the message, we'll talk about what happens a little bit later. But have you found 1 John chapter 3? Let's start with verse 11. And if you don't have it in your Bible, here it is up on the Sky Bible. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, 
that the world hates you. Don't be surprised about that. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, listen to this, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. The last few verses of that, to me, what it says is that, that God is bigger than the things that we emote, the things that we feel. He's bigger than our emotions. God is bigger than all of that. And then I really want to kind of hone in on this one verse 18 that says, Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now that word deed in the Greek is ergon, and in every other, almost every other place in the New Testament, the way that that word is translated is works. So what John is telling us here is that our love is supposed to be an actionable, intentional love. Actionable and intentional. A love of choice. Something that we see that works through us. You see, brothers and sisters, here's the, the, thing, the culture that we live in today has been telling us a lie, has been delivering a lie for so long. This is, this is the way the enemy uses the culture to speak to us. I mean, the culture says that love is simply an emotion. It's something that comes and goes, ebbs and flows. We fall in and out of love. Here today, gone tomorrow. And the culture really wants to speak a great deal about love. As a matter of fact, I did some research, and since they've been keeping track of number one charted songs or albums, records, um, since they've been keeping track, there have been 128 number one songs in the United States that are titled with the word love. But a lot of these songs, a lot, if you run down the song titles, you can see that a lot of these are delivering this emotional, this wrong-minded message to us as a body. we got songs like, uh, where did our love go? You've lost that loving feeling. The game of love. It's just a game. Uh, I think I love you. Fallen in love. We got the love roller coaster. Up and down. Here's a guy. I want to know what love is. Can't help but falling in love. In 2010, Eminem went to number one with a song, and this really speaks to our culture. The song was Love the Way You Lie. That's, yeah, love the way you lie. Don't like it. And then in 2016, Justin Bieber charted at number one with the song, 
Love yourself. So, that's, that's culturally true, isn't it? Love yourself. Um, I, I think that just, according to what I read anyway, Justin Bieber has now become a Christian, so I'm hoping that he's going to chart now with things like love God and love each other. You know, love your neighbor. That'd be, that'd be some good, good number one hits, wouldn't it? So anyway, so we have this culture that tells us that love is an emotion, and what this does for us, or does to us, I should say, not for us, but really to us, is it really gets us in trouble because then we have families that, where the kids unfortunately hear things like, um, daddy doesn't love mommy anymore, but I'm, but I'm gonna love you always. Well, how's that fit? You know, there's no way that a kid can understand the dichotomy of that statement, right? The culture does not understand that we as Christians are commanded to love. We're commanded to love. And if it's commanded by God for us to love, then it's certainly something that we can do. And it's something that we show in terms of action and intentionality backed up by truth. I'm not, and brothers and sisters, don't get me wrong because I am not saying that there's not an emotional component to love. That's not it at all. As a matter of fact, if you go to John 11, and you don't need to turn there, but there's an amazing account of Jesus and um, Mary and Martha, his, their brother, Lazarus. Now this, this is, if, if, if Jesus had a family on earth, it would be Mary and Martha and Lazarus, for sure. These were his peeps, you know. Remember that he was rejected by his family, pretty much. But in John 11, Mary and Martha send a word to Jesus, and the word that they send him, and this blows me away, this statement, but they say, Jesus, the one whom you love is sick. Now that's an interesting statement in and of itself, and and you know the story, Jesus tarries, and we wonder why Jesus tarries, and then, then he goes and, and he stands before Lazarus' grave, and, and Jesus is standing there, and he, he commands him to roll the stone away, and, and one of the sisters says, man, Jesus, you don't want to be doing that. He stinketh. He stinketh, according to the, New King, or the King James Version. But... But as Jesus is standing there before Lazarus' grave, one of the things that it's recorded that he does, and this is everybody's favorite Sunday school scripture, Jesus wept, because we can memorize that really easily. And then the, the immediate verse after that, and the Jews look at Jesus weeping and they say, see how he loved them. An amazing little story, and one of the things that I think about when I look at that story is, besides the fact that obviously Jesus is displaying emotion, and we know that the Word tells us that Jesus really experienced everything that we experience. This way, he is a God that can identify with us, and we can identify with him. But think about this. 
What moved Jesus to go to Lazarus and to weep before his grave? What moved him? You know, if it was Lazarus' love, then Mary and Martha would have said, Hey, Jesus, you know Lazarus, that guy that you love? He's sick. You've got to come. No. What, he, what they said and what they recognized is, Jesus, the man that you love is sick. So God's love, Jesus' love, is what moved him. I want you to catch that. Jesus' love moved him to go to Lazarus. So there's an emotional component. I want to acknowledge that. But I want to go back to the actionable and intentional components of love. Um, You can go ahead and, Kaylee, if you could show us the picture of, I want to introduce you to a guy named Eusebius. Get that picture up there. There he is. This is Eusebius of Caesarea. Caesarea was a major city in the Roman Empire in the 4th century. And early in the 4th century, Caesarea, one of the largest cities, um, was not only attacked by um, hordes of invaders, but almost immediately after that, they went through um, a really bad famine. And Eusebius was a historian that lived in the city. And after the famine, I mean, Caesarea was really going through it. After the famine, almost immediately, there developed a plague. Plague was bad. As a matter of fact, Eusebius records that all of the Roman inhabitants of Caesarea were fleeing the city to get away from the plague. And this is what he says. This is a quote from his account of what then happened. He says, all day long, some of them, that is the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Other Christians gathered together from all parts of the city a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. This is Eusebius saying, the Romans are running away and the Christians are running into the midst of a famine and a plague because they know that they're commanded to love. It so affected them that here's what, the, here's what he continued to write. The Christians' deeds were on everyone's lips, and they glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they alone were pious and truly reverent to God. The actions of those Christians were convincing these Roman pagans that, man, look at these guys. Those are the guys that have the right idea about God. They understand who God is. I mean, it was a testimony. A few decades after Eusebius lived in Caesarea, there arose an emperor of of Rome. You can go ahead and put Julian the emperor up there. Good-looking guy here. There's Julian the emperor of Rome. He lived a few decades after Eusebius. Um, He's also called, I I really like this, Julian the Apostate. Julian was the last truly pagan emperor of Rome. This guy had every interest in being pagan. I mean, he was invested 
in the pagan religions of Rome. So what he was invested in, he wanted to reassure that Rome remained a religious pagan city. And so he wanted, um, and, he, and he was well aware of what was going on with the Christians at the time of Rome. But he wrote to his priest, and here's what Julian the Apostate wrote to the pagan priest that lived in Rome at the time. It says, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priest, then I think the impious Galileans, that is the Christians, they called them Galileans, the impious Galileans observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. They, the Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well, and all people see that our people lack aid from us. The Christian testimony, the Christian assistance during that period of time was so great that this guy that was invested in the pagan religion wanted the pagan priest to do exactly what the Christians were doing at the time because he knew the power of that testimony. He failed. He failed. There's no way that a multi-deity pagan structure could ever do what we are able to do as brothers and sisters in Christ. It just can't happen. Amen? Amen? <clears throat> you can go ahead and take that down, Kaylee. Um, during the past two weeks, we've been blessed to hear from this very platform some excellent messages about how we, the body of Christ, um, our community called Generation Church, how we can reach into the broader community that we call Granbury and Hood County. We talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pastor Laura, our children's pastor, talked about how we can sow good God kingdom seeds out there in the community. And then last week we heard from Pastor Allen from this same platform, and he talked about how we can be, as a body, generous to others, and that can be a testimony to our community. And I believe that all of that is true. That is exactly what John, the apostle, is writing when he says that we love indeed. But then John, the apostle, goes on to talk about, and we love in truth. And we love in truth. And... I think that when he shifts gears a little bit to that truth, what he's talking about is that we as a community in here have to love in the same manner. We need to be loving in truth. We need to be able to be free to tell each other that we love each other and to be able to encourage each other and to exhort each other if that's what's necessary. We need to be able to operate in truth within the confines of this community, this body, and... Um, Paul says it like this in Romans 12, the New Living Translation. Paul commands, or says, uh, tells us, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. And Jesus told his disciples, as, as recorded in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
So my challenge is this, brothers and sisters, that, that we love each other in such a way in deed, yes, in here, but also in truth. In other words, we understand that it's okay for us to have differences with each other, but we don't do it the way that the world do, does it. You know, the culture has introduced this social media concept, and I, I tell you, every little thing is totally aired out in public. We ought not be like that. You know? The way that we operate with each other is we, if we have ought with a brother, we're commanded in Matthew 18, we go to each other, and it's a one-on-one -on -one until we get things straightened out. And we do that in terms of forgiveness and grace and peace and humility. We need to be intentional about loving each other in this way. And I think that as we begin to get intentional about loving each other in this body in this way, that we're going to begin to see revival in our community. I really believe that. A lot of people in this body have received words from God, and I believe truly that they are words from the Lord because they brought them to us, that revival is coming. Revival is coming, and that's an amen. We want revival, don't we? Because we want that Holy Spirit power to descend. There's no doubt about it. But if revival comes, we need to be prepared to really double up on the level of love that we show one another because with revival comes challenges. Amen? We need to be... And, and I also believe that if we really begin to love each other, that in and of itself will help to drive the revival that God wants to pour out. Amen. So this is how... If, if I had an exhortation that I could speak over our body right now, it would almost be encapsulated by what Paul writes, uh, the very last verses in his letter to the church at Corinth. Um, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Here's what he says. I would say this to you. Dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these last words. Be joyful. Grow to maturity. Encourage each other. Live in harmony and peace. Then the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet each other with Christian love. All of God's people here send you their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. We should receive that in the name of Jesus. Yes, that's a good one. So, um, I want to return to the story that I started out with about me being in the hospital because I believe that this is a word that some of us need to hear, certainly a tool that I use on a regular basis. Um, I hold that story that I told you about waking up with Marietta on the gurney behind, behind me uh, and recognizing that here is a woman that loves me. I hold it very closely. Because there are times, brothers and sisters, and I know that you probably don't believe it, but every once in a while, there are circumstances that arise in our marriage that I am not feeling the love. <laughs> Just every once in a while. <laughs> I could be writing some of those um, song titles. <laughs> 
So, I mean, and it's really rare, but it does happen. I mean, these circumstances arise, and I'm like, and I am really trying to walk in submission to the Holy Spirit in regards to my relationship with Marietta. And then I remember, I pull out that tool, or I remember that picture of how Marietta responded when I was in need. You know, because I recognize that it's not healthy for me to walk in a situation where I'm not feeling the love towards Marietta. What's going to happen? Well, the devil is going to come in, and he is going to try to divide Marietta and I, or he's going to try to diminish the power that exists in the one flesh relationship that God created for us as we covenanted together. We recognize the power in that. I don't want anything to diminish that power, so I need to make sure that I get away from that not loving feeling very quickly. Right? So I, I pull out the tool and I go, you know what? It doesn't matter what she's saying right now. It doesn't matter what you're feeling right now. What she has done is, I, re, I remember, she showed you how she loves you. And she has showed you how she loves you. And I remember that and I get restored to a place where, yeah, you're right, God. You're right. I'm going to move beyond this. I'm going to walk in that. I'm going to be actionable and intentional about my love towards her because I remember that she was actionable and intentional about her love towards me. She has a track record. She has a track record. So I'm going to ask uh, Joshua if you could come on up. Um, I want to transition that tool to something that, that I believe that maybe some of you are dealing with right now as we get ready to close the service. Um, we're in the middle of a season where we're beginning to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, the Messiah, Christ Jesus. And it's a wonderful time for us. Thank you, Lord. Um, and on our Christmas cards, we see these words all the time. For unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's from Isaiah 9, verse 6. And we read these words, and I really believe that sometimes we really miss the power of these words. Because what God is saying there through the prophet Isaiah is that I'm going to do something for you that you never even knew you needed. I'm going to send you. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to take action. I'm going to love you through an action. I'm going to love you intentionally. Unto us a son is given. Yeah, we talk about the baby Jesus, but this was a huge sacrifice. As a matter of fact, I think that there's such a remarkable parallel between Isaiah 9-6 and, yes, the, the best-known scripture, obviously, and I'm going to use it because it really fits here because the parallel illustrates what I'm talking about. John 3-16 says, 
for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We look at that and this is what we tend to to forget. God is the one that initiated the action. Who loved? Who started it? God. God. God did it. How much did he love? Well, he so loved. He loved exceedingly. Who did who did God love? Well, he loved a fallen world that was in badly bad needed badly needed restoration. It was fallen, but still he sent his son. Who did he give? His only son. His beloved son. That's who he gave. And why did he give? So that whoever, whoever, I mean, whoever. Is that amazing? Whoever believes could be reconciled with God the Father. Not just worshipers. Not just pastors. Not just the Pope. Whoever believes can be reconciled with Him. This is an amazing thing. We're going to go ahead and sing that that song, Noel. Um, uh, If Leah and the rest of the worship team could come up. And as we sing it, I want you to sing it from the perspective that we have a God that loved us in a way that was intentional. We have a God that loved us and took action to show us his love. He didn't just say it. And I think that if you're in a place right now where maybe you're not feeling that God loves you much this season, or maybe you're in a place where you're not really feeling the love for God, Really? Oh. Either one of those things, it doesn't matter because what we're going to do is we're going to sing about the fact that God took action. He did something for you when you weren't asking for it. He did the only thing that he could do, the most precious gift that he could give. He did. That's what he did.